Good evening, everyone. Welcome to McKinsey's Discussions in Digital podcast. This is our series that brings together different voices here in Silicon Valley to explore interesting issues emerging today in the digital world. Uh, tonight, we're going to explore culture in small companies and large ones, and we're going to explore what can each learn from each other. My name is Brian Gregg, and I'm a partner in McKinsey's San Francisco office, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my colleague, Diane Esber, David Lee, the COO of Impossible Foods, and Pavan Tapadia, the Chief Product Officer at Yammer, which is now part of Microsoft. Thanks, everyone, for being with me. I'm Diane Esber. I'm an Associate Principal out of San Francisco. I spend all of my time in marketing and sales helping companies grow. And what I get asked all the time from the largest companies are, how do I become more agile? I want to become more agile. How do I do it? I love that question of stability versus agility. Is this a trade-off? In other words, do we have to either solve for being agile, solve for being stable or scalable, um, or is there some way to do both? David, what do you think? Well, I think it depends upon whether you're asking the question whether leaders have to make that trade-off or companies do. Um, I absolutely don't think leaders have to. And in fact, I would say, uh, you know, I, I think about my days initially at Best Buy when there was a change in leadership at the top. I clearly saw, you know, Hugh Berger-Lee and Sharon McCollum exhibit this uncanny combination of being extremely fast and yet uh, putting in place something that would endure as one of the better turnarounds in retail, having, I think they tripled the stock price. Great leaders don't make that trade-off. I would say that companies do. Uh, and I think companies do, but they do it not in a homogenous way. You know, if, if you're a startup, if you're, if you're pre-revenue, if you're hyper-growth, you don't have a choice. You have to be agile because you have to create something that's never been seen before. Right. But as you scale, putting in place the foundation in finance or um, in risk management in order to create reliability and repeatability uh, is, is critical at the same time. Well, it's an interesting distinction, company versus leader. Pavan, what do you think? Is it a true choice or can you do both? I think there are real trade-offs. But when you, I think when you talk about small companies, a lot of times it's agility but it's unplanned agility. It's because there's a lack of process or a lack of thoughtful agility. And so in every element of your business, there are trade-offs between stability and agility. So I think what you want to do is identify which elements need to change frequently and which elements are the structure to support that change. Are there any examples of core processes that could never be anything but agile because they were so core to the business? Well, I, I think there are examples of things that I think should uh, be always agile, but at big companies, because of scale, it often becomes hard to maintain that agility. And so, on your product, the product priorities, you want to be agile there. If when you try and change product priorities, it requires a reorg of your organization, then it's clearly too expensive uh, to, to change direction. And so, you see a lot of elements at big companies where they solidified something in their performance management system or the org chart or something, and then it becomes so stable that it becomes hard to be agile. Even though it might be a critical part of their business that should be more agile. But you imagine as companies grow, you need some of that. So how do you do both? For me, it's, it's less about size. It's about how close to the consumer need is there. So in startups, when there's this opportunity using technology to leapfrog a way to fulfill an underlying consumer need, you have to be agile, particularly the closer you are to the consumer. So in product and marketing and sales, the way you interact with consumers. But on the functions that are further away from the source of the change, which 
in, in some of these startups I see is really just about fulfilling a consumer need in a dramatically faster way. Stability is required to enable it. It's almost like funding your future uh, at a startup. But I'm wondering, Pavan, from a, a person who saw Yammer from its early days all the way through part of Microsoft, same playbook? We need product expertise in certain areas. Those are areas that don't change. We always need people who are going to be experts in, let's say, messaging. We're a messaging product. or in search. But when we start to work on a big problem, we pull people from those different domains to work on a product, on something that's important to the, to the business. And that changes every quarter. And so I think what you have to recognize is that the org chart is not where work gets done. Work happens outside of that org chart. And if you can make that recognition, then big companies can start to make that be more agile while having some stability underneath it. Smaller companies are just much more purpose-driven. And so it's that alignment to mission that is pervasive throughout most small companies. I feel like at a lot of big companies, it becomes much more career-driven. I mean, to me, culture is what gets rewarded around here. Either, and, and I don't mean just um, financially, I mean what behaviors, uh, what manners of speech uh, elicit support socially and results in career progress and financial gain. So if you define culture that way, the, the examples from not just Best Buy, but almost every large turnaround I, I've seen of culture failing is when the focus is on the superficial totems of culture. You know, the, the uh, marathon the sessions, yeah, the marathon sessions on let's, let's debate as a team whether the mission statement should be should or would, or, you know, should we, are the values out of date? Um, Let's hire a great strategic consultancy to help us refresh no, the my, values my of the favorite, company. My favorite quote, I think, in Steve Jobs' books is, if you have to have signs on your walls to talk about culture, you have a culture problem. Like, yeah. it's like, the... Here's a question for you both. And this came in through some of our tweets um, in the last month. So companies have been around 50 years. There's a lot of them out there. They're big. They've done a good job. They've created value. But they're stuck, they're not growing, they're finding, they're trying to either, or maybe they're in a turnaround, maybe they're trying to grow. What's the advice of finding a new purpose or reigniting a, an original purpose to, in, in a place where there is none today, or very little? David, what do you think? Um, I think if you have a situation where the culture is fundamentally out of sync with the requirements for success, I think as a leader, that is an almost impossible situation to turn around in the short term. I think you're in for a very long-term transformation, is, is my own view. And I think being realistic about it at the outset is, is maybe the first thing. I think with most of those cases is you got to reduce the cost of failure. And so what are the things you can do to start to change slowly and iteratively? Go in and say, here's a whole set of new values. We're going to start doing this. That's going to get rejected. The immune system is going to throw that out. But how can you start to move in that direction? So what are some of the processes or new systems or new performance evaluation tools that you can start to bring in that start to move you in that direction? I think part of the Silicon Valley tech culture, if you will, uh, is marketed as being fundamentally different than the way in which these great Midwestern and East Coast-based companies operate. And I think that's a fallacy. I, I think the fundamentals of good business, um, good leadership, actually are extremely relevant regardless of whether you're here and you have a talent center or you're in Chicago. I, I, I largely agree with David. You don't need to be here to, to learn how to, to build in this new way. And I, and I think if you did open an incubation center or some innovation center here, that's not going to change your culture. What's important is that it might expose you to the ideas that are popular in Silicon Valley, which I do think there are a lot of ideas here around 
openness and transparency and sharing and, and ideas that can help develop a better culture. And if you can take those ideas from that innovation center, spread them throughout the rest of your company, that's valuable. I don't think you need an innovation center to do that, but if it helps you learn uh, and experiment and what will work in your company, then that could be valuable. So here's my question though, put yourself puffing back in like the Clorox days, David in the Del Monte or the Best Buy days. What are things that they did very well that you'd say, having been in the small company world, is, is learnable and is, is something they should be doing earlier than they do? Now one that I see startups really struggle with is people management and crew development. And so when you're a small company and you're 10 people and everyone's highly motivated, highly talented, it doesn't matter. I think Plavin's right. I, I, I think the large companies that I've been a part of know how to self-perpetuate stability because of the way in which they allow people to progress. I mean, the, the notion of brand management is an example. And the apprenticeship model of traditional uh, direct-to-consumer-facing brands is measured in you know multiple years. And it's measured in titles that are carefully designed to show progress on a regular basis. Uh, and, and that thinking uh, by large companies on how to give the employee development, but also satisfaction and an essence of stature is absolutely counter to the way I've experienced tech. Um, because in, in, in tech, it's about a flat organization and about the impact and innovation you can have, which is wonderful, right up until the point where the employee is no longer contributing to the same pace at the initial days. A lot of those companies are optimizing for efficiency. There's a distinct role that we know if you do and then your boss does and their boss does, we will deliver this product in a very efficient manner, it'll get to market, and we will make the expected profits. And so that is optimizing for efficiency. It's not optimizing for new ideas, new innovation, for people to think out of that box. And so I think that's a trade-off that a lot of companies make. And if you're in an industry where it's about economies of scale or something around efficiency, then that model might work well. But in a world now where it's about information flows, and about coming up with new ideas and innovation, and that thing that tends to stifle those kinds of ideas. A big part of it is if you're at a large Fortune 100 company and you need to make a change, you bypass, you skip three or four of those layers. You find that incredibly high potential, hungry um, middle manager or lower who can be assembled as part of a cross-functional SWAT team to almost give the larger organization what, what Pavan's describing, which is this startup-like mission of fast change that has had some success because you break into the stability and you create artificial agility with folks who already know the culture um, but haven't learned some of the mistakes perhaps that have uh, left the corporation in, in trouble. Just one, one point on that. As you start to get bigger, you start to develop those silos. And one of the things I, I feel like when I, that I've seen at small companies over and over is that because there's a clear purpose, it's also clear what the role of each of those departments are. And they're, all, they're talking, so the role of HR and the role of some of these support functions, it's very clear that they're trying to help accelerate the business, accelerate yeah. the product. Uh, what I've seen a lot of times happens as companies get bigger is those silos tend to buckle down and they create their own missions that, tend to, that aren't always tied to a, a, the macro. a, yes, a macro a purpose. Yeah. So I agree that those, at big companies, those departments can become really efficient. The question is, are they always as yeah. effectively try, tied to the purpose? I, I, Pavan, I think that's a great point. Uh, let, me, let me play devil's advocate, though, because I would say one of the things I'm seeing at hyper-growth startups uh, like Impossible Foods and, and also in turnarounds is that 
the functions, let me be specific, people ops or HR and finance are functions that have the ability to do more than support, they can help lead the way. Whereas when you're in a large stable corporation, the view of those functions is to eliminate risk, right? Let's not make that financial decision that could ruin the company, or let's not create an HR policy that could create the liability. But when we talk about culture, a great, a really great people ops leader, even at a startup sub 50 people, should be thinking about the seeds that are being planted for the culture that will grow, which is the way I oftentimes talk about my, my, my team at Impossible Foods, is your job is not to prevent us from making a mistake financially. Your job is to find ways to fund double down bets on growth. And the ideal is that, that those other functions help accelerate the company and its mission. Risk is a great example. And so it, it, when done poorly, you know, the HR or legal team or whatever team you're talking about, if their goal becomes to minimize risk, and that becomes the goal, which I think happens at a lot it of does. big companies, then that's, then now you've created this misalignment with the company and the mission and where the company can go, yeah. the, you, you, become, you, you, you get into a really tough, tough situation. But right you don't now. go to jail. You don't go to jail, but you, but you might go bankrupt. So you guys have told us a little bit about agility versus efficiency and scale. Just last year, McKinsey's organizational health practice did a re piece of research that showed that companies with both speed and stability, Pavan, to your point earlier in the conversation, have a 70% chance of outperforming those who don't. So my question on this is, if you were to describe world-class agility, what does it look like? What does it need to start with? The true measure of agility in my mind is what businesses have you sunk seeds into to replace the business that you know is dying today. And oftentimes timing doesn't work. You know, tripling the omni-channel e-commerce growth at Best Buy because of their large size wasn't initially sufficient to offset the decline in same-store sales. Transformations take a long time. So I think it's a fallacy to look at the results uh, initially and rather look at the underlying businesses that have high prospects for growth versus the ones that are dying would be my view. That's very interesting. But how do others go from what is a quarterly march to a terminal value world where I can think five, seven years out and, and be okay with that investment horizon? It's not an easy shift. Public companies that are facing short-term financial pressure who need to transform their business model and recreate the story for investors require that they are absolutely transparent on the business model. So one of the things I learned from Hubert Jolie and Sharon is they branded it. They called it Renew Blue. They said, here is the profit margin in five years for the business, and here's how brand new omni-channel growth in e-commerce is going to deliver it against it. And as much as they focused each quarterly report on where we were on same-store sales, they actually took away guidance for each quarter, well, for each year. They did report against each quarter, to focus investors on the multi-year transformation required for the retailer. So reframing the expectations to be multi-year versus short-term gave, it, in that example- They branded it. And branding it, and, and by the way, holding us, to be, to be clear, holding us, the, the Best Buy in that case, accountable to the non-financial metrics associated with long-term performance gave the ability for investors to buy into a transformation. 
And if you're a public company, if you merely throw your hand up and say, forget about what's happening in the short term, I promise you something good's going to happen, you are unlikely to have the same degree of freedom. So from Best Buy, I would say, reframing the journey and, and focusing on the metrics today that predict long-term success versus short-term performance is critical for a transformation. Interesting. So maybe one of my last questions is actually around the ecosystem, which Diane knows is a big Silicon Valley topic. And you think about, about big and small. Are ecosystems something to embrace and make a big push on? Or is it something that's in general important to build 90% of it in-house? And of course, yes, there's always a role for other outside vendors, but is there a view on which of those are better? Is there a better answer? And if so, what's the advice? The key to the ecosystem question is about what is the center of it? And if, if the customer is the center of it, it's less about the community you build with your suppliers and your manufacturers. It's more about what does the consumer need in order for you to be successful. The so-called sharing economy is, is a community less driven by who's providing the cars and the vehicles, but more about the fact that the consumer was desiring something instantaneous, cheaper, and convenient, for which a community was required to deliver it rather than some academic question of how you reach out to related counterparties. Kevin, do you agree or do you? There's a trade-off. So for instance, when we look at ecosystems, you can loosely couple or you can tightly couple. And if we look at what we're, like one of the things we're focused on at Yammer today is we're tightly coupling in with Office 365. And it allows us to create some incredible experiences for the user that are really powerful. The downside of that is we lose some agility. And so if we want to start to change some things in the future, it requires a lot of agreement costs to get other people to change. So yeah. the trade-off starts to become, what is the value of the experience you're going to deliver versus the cost of that tight coupling? So I think, you know, there's no clear answer on this, but it depends on whether you loosely couple or tightly couple. And there's a spectrum there. This has been a great conversation this evening. I want to thank you all again for joining me tonight for McKinsey's Discussions in Digital. For our listeners, please tweet us your ideas for our next podcast. And who do you want to hear from? What do you want to hear about? Let us know. And to learn more about what we're publishing, check out our site, McKinsey Digital and McKinsey on Marketing on Sales. Thank you, everyone, and good night from Mocha Core here in San Francisco. <laughs>